Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, lovely people. Um, welcome again to Sister Speak with Dr. Emma Church. That's me. And I'm really thrilled today to have Stephanie Wheat Johnson here with us. Um, I had received her form and was so thrilled with all of the things that she wanted to share and also had no idea who she was until she showed up and then recognized that we actually do know each other. And I was like, it's you. Um, and, you know, Waco is a beautiful little microcosm of the world in this way. You know, you can see a person around, um, recognize a vibe, like we should probably know each other. Yes. And and then sometimes that doesn't ever happen until a beautiful moment like this. Aww. So I'm thrilled to have you, and I know that you're going to be sharing from the heart about um, your life journey and many things that have shaped you and the beautiful things that you've learned from it, um, which is one of the things about this podcast I think that is so remarkable is in the midst of suffering and pain, people are resilient and find a way to not only endure but make meaning out of it. Mm, and, yeah. and, you know, I see that in you, and I'm I cannot wait to hear more today. So welcome. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I am really delighted that you're doing this. I love your heart for women in our community and everywhere and allowing them space to share their stories is really special. Well, thank you so much. It is it is the work of my heart. It's something I'm passionate about. And, you know, I am a lover of people. I am a lover of women, really the unsung heroes of our world. Our stories mm -hmm. do not get shared no. often. And so what an <laughs> awesome opportunity um, to be able to displace the strength and resilience that that we all embody. Um, yeah. And I know we'll be talking more about embodiment today. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Um, yes, it is. Yes. Tell us, Stephanie, kind of where you've come from in, in this life journey. Tell us your origin story. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I always, when I introduce myself, you know, people will always ask, where are you from? And uh, that I'm always like, are you really ready? Are you really prepared for that? Uh, so I usually just say, I'm a third culture kid. Um, and I, I think that's becoming more of a term that more people understand now. But the general idea is I 
was um, raised by people who had one dominant culture that they shared, but I was born into another culture um, and raised in that culture. Uh, I was super lucky, actually. I have a mom who's also a TCK, <laughs> so um, having that shared path was really cool. Um, I was born and raised in Zimbabwe, but uh, my father is from West Texas. Um, my mom's family is from, uh, you know, Oklahoma and Kansas, but they um, were led and were just like really um, big hearted, amazing, compassionate people that felt called to do mission work uh, back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And like, picked up their entire life in their early 20s and went to Africa. Uh, and I think they, you know, I really respect what they did because I know it was it was very grounded in who they were. And uh, they did some incredible work and really got to know the culture there, which I think is kind of unusual. Sometimes uh, you'll encounter missions kids who didn't get the chance to really have that, but I witnessed that a lot. So I always say Zimbabwe is my home, but um, now I've actually lived in Waco a little bit longer than anywhere else I've ever lived, which is really weird, <laughs> and yeah. I'm really grateful for it. So yeah, um, growing up being a, a TCK, I, I joke and say I've always been an outsider. Um, but honestly, that's also kind of the magic for me too. Uh, it did not feel like magic, especially not in my teens when we moved back right. to the States. Having um, reverse culture shock and just, you know, adjusting to a world that was just, it felt so different and so for, you know, teenage brain that's developing so wrong. <laughs> that was, that was a hard thing. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the teenage years and, and I think, you know, all the time really. And, and until we really do our own healing work, this idea of belonging mm-hmm. and being understood and, yeah knowing how to navigate your culture. These are things that are really important. And, and, you know, Mm -hmm. as a teenager, not having that sense of belonging can be so painful. Yeah. You know, and I'm resonating so much with your story. My family weren't missionaries, Mm -hmm. but um, born and raised in New Zealand. And, you know, I, I look American. I mean, I'm white. (laughs) I I lost my accent a long time ago, Mm -hmm. but this, kind of inner feeling of I don't belong here. Yes. And you know when people ask where I'm from, I'm like everywhere, nowhere. Uh-huh. It's kind of <laughs> citizen yeah. of the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My husband was reminding me the other day we were talking with some new friends and he said, "Oh, you know, I didn't realize um uh with the accent thing uh, that Stephanie, you know, had had an accent until I started seeing her talk to other people who had more of a sort of British colonial influence in their voices because suddenly she would sound that way. And he said, why did you, um, you know, lose your accent? You came back to the States when you were a teen. I said, because American teenagers are cruel. Mm, (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Which is, I mean, I I say that now and I think he learned that about me 15 years ago. And I I think I've softened. I'm, I'm, you know, Soon I'm going to have a teenager of my own, so I should probably shift my thinking there, maybe a little. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that whole, like, not knowing where you belong, Mm -hmm. and and as a young person, is really, at a time when actually you're really, I think, designed to start creating that belongingness, Um, and being uprooted several times, it it is traumatic, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, I think sometimes we forget that actually, you know, those shifts, uh, even if they're for positive reasons, that's still stress on your body. That's still a lot of trauma going on. And stress on a family system, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. about parents and I think about my parents and 
as I look back at my childhood in America, mm. really seeing immigration trauma. Oh, yeah. You know, feeling displaced. My parents not really having, we didn't have family. Yeah. So like trying to kind of navigate a culture you don't know mm-hmm. without the relational support yeah. that if, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you guys had lived in Zimbabwe for so long, they're kind of jumping back in and yeah. having to rebuild. Yeah. And, you know, you're the kid, but even as parents, <laughs> that's challenging. It is. And traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was very fortunate, like I said, that my mom had already kind of gone through the TCK experience and she actually um, came back to the U.S. for university. And it was in the late 70s when uh, Zimbabwe was actually achieving its independence. And so she left a war zone, um, which I don't think I really fully understood or appreciated until Um, probably in the last 10 years that, you know, that was huge for her. But so I was lucky I had her and I had my dad who he, he didn't go anywhere really until he met my mom. But I think understanding that shift back and forth was so valuable. Um, And that's where I think I understood what belonging is. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone gets that, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, the contrast. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you, you kind of have spoken to in what you sent me this you know, really kind of not viewing the world black and white, good and bad. Mm -hmm. But in these contrasting moments, we are able to appreciate the beautiful things, the belonging moments, because we know what it feels like to not Mm -hmm. belong. Yeah. And I think uh, having those at a a young age has always made me very just sort of cognizant of like, who are the people in the room that are like, you know, feeling that way? Um, and I mean, I'm, a, I'm a naturally highly sensitive person. An empath, I would yes. imagine. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And, um, on top of that, I only recently was diagnosed with ADHD, but now looking back, I go, oh my word, no wonder I've always been kind of like, oh, I'm just like, I don't understand what's going on in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Squirrel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Shiny objects. But. <laughs> Again, I think that helped me kind of create myself in a way. I mean, I will say for many years, I think there was sort of an outer shell, definitely like a lot of masking going on. Um, But yeah, so that was, you know, my young life. And then um, my young life uh, hit some interesting twists and turns in my 20s. So, you know, I um, went to a university uh, that was affiliated with the the church that uh, I've been raised in, my faith heritage, and um, met a lot of wonderful people, good people in my corner kind of stuff. And that was, I always tell people that uh, my time at that university was actually when I decided that it was okay to be American for the first time. So Mm -hmm. some really good formative things there. But I also, I think because I come from you know, so many shifts and I, I am such a sensitive person and I had such a strong, I think, desire for being seen, for finding that belonging. I very, I was very susceptible, uh, to, um, relationships that were not good for me. And, uh, I did not date in, in high school. And so when I got to college, I had this image that, I mean, it's a beautiful image. Like my parents met in university and got married and, you know, they're almost, you know, like 43 years married now. And it's, it's amazing, Mm. (laughs) you know, like, wow. So I think I really had told myself that story that that's what was going to happen and that maybe even it had to happen. And so when I dated a guy and, you know, thought he was just like the best, I'm sure I know I was in love with him, but you know, I didn't recognize all the red flags because I didn't know what to look for. I didn't, Mm really even maybe 
recognizing myself what my gut was saying about some of those things. And I think part of that is, you know, the way we were raised as women and sometimes in religious cultures too is to kind of, what's the right word? I want to say sublimate, but just sort of push down um, what our, those signals are because we were supposed to give up, give up of ourselves and not be selfish and to listen and to, you know, and so I, I got, very enmeshed with this person who had some trauma, had some things that he was going through, probably like any normal 19-year-old guy. Honestly, I look back and I'm like, wow, we were babies. Yeah. <laughs> but in the middle of that, I didn't recognize a narcissist. I didn't recognize someone who had some major anger issues that he had never had help working out. Mm-hmm. And and some of the same sort of very um, conservative religious culture that unfortunately hurts men just as much as women. Because there were some standards and some ideas in his head about how men should treat women that hurt us both. Absolutely. I mean, what you are saying that this kind of unique culture that, you know, we we find ourselves actually, I think, in Waco, very much in a hotbed of it. Mm, Yes. Um, This religious upbringing that negates um, a woman's autonomy in yeah, relationship yeah. because we're not really supposed to have it right you know submission mm-hmm. and all of those things so we you know I don't know that we're taught that we get to choose mm-hmm. I don't know that we're taught to listen to our guts mm-hmm. um that those things don't matter because we are to be in service yeah. of you know especially in a heterosexual mm. normed yeah. um messaging as well subservient to male energy mm-hmm. or, or males in relationships. So yeah. it does make, um, I think women raised in that specific culture uniquely susceptible to abusive relationships because we don't really know. We don't. And I think there's uh, definitely like a lack of agency that I, I, I look back now and think I just felt like I had no power to change that. Um, I could, I could try, I, I tried to bargain for things. So, you know, I look back now and I'm like, wow, wow, why couldn't I have just, but I wasn't there yet. Um, But yeah, you know, I think there's also like this level of, yeah, it's women in general in our culture don't have that voice. And then specifically in that religious atmosphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of doubling down. Yeah. You see this in a there's, patriarchal culture, mm-hmm. which is, you know, our entire country yeah. and potentially the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of an additional layering within that conservative Christian yeah. Um, messaging. Yeah. And I, I think about it. So that would have been like the early 2000s when all that went down. And that was also sort of, um, in my experience, like sort of the height of, or when we're first seeing sort of the waves of purity culture that have kind of really impacted a lot of youth groups across across different flavors of Christianity, especially in sort of the evangelical realm. And um, to me, it's kind of horrifying to think about now because I I know it's still happening and I don't want my own kids to kind of deal with that. But when I look back, I think I had told myself a story that I'd heard, you know, that I I chose to wait. I chose that, you know, to do all the, the sort of right things I read the right books. Bless his soul, Josh Harris. Is um, that like dating yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. You know, oh my. Oh, that poor man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it was a lovely, and I, I, you know, you think about, he wrote it when he was 19. Oh my gosh. Um, so. And that it impacted generations of us. It really did. Yes. It I, really. Oh. It's scary. It is. And so, you know. 
man, you talk about a lesson about just like how your words can impact people. Absolutely. Mm. But yeah, so um, in the midst of all that, I got married uh, at barely 20. Um, and uh, very quickly, I think, realized that I was in a bad situation um, for lots of different reasons. And um, it was a, a total of four years that I was in that marriage, in that relationship. And it took me through, um, you know, recognizing I was depressed uh, and dealing with anxiety and all these things to him taking all those things and turning it into your broken yeah. um, and using that and manipulating me so that he could get what he needed, he wanted, that he could tell the stories he felt made him better. Control that narrative. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in, in the midst of that as well, I mean, really, even before we were married, um, there was a lot of sexual trauma, you know. And, um, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, it's like my body doesn't want to, but I, I experienced rape in that relationship. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, <laughs> that it, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, because I think that's something that really needs to be talked about. And, you know, we live in a state in which spousal rape mm. is still not considered illegal. Yeah. And that churn, you know, women's bodies. There's there's so many things there that are problematic. But, mm. you know, shame and and thinking that we have obligation and all of these things, you know, rapes occur and. And our body doesn't want to acknowledge it because we feel to blame. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, this, you know, this is my spouse. Yeah. And it's like, you know, anybody can can be the perpetrator of rape. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I look at it now and I realize it took me probably five or six years to really fully, I think, integrate that into my system and to be able to say to my body, I am so sorry. We went through this. We went through it together. Mm-hmm. And this this was hard. And, you know, it it is not something we're to blame for. And and that's really hard to say. Yeah. Um, and I I am I have never hesitated <laughs> uh, to share that and, and to share just like my path. Um, that was something that I learned. So like, uh, you know, I, I went, I was going through all of those things and I had family that I know was like, they were desperate to help me and they didn't know how, you know, and on top of that, uh, so my, my ex decided to quit college. He joined the army with very, really not my consent. <laughs> I had mentioned it actually, like he and I had talked about it. And then one day he just came home with the recruiter and was like, Hey, I'm doing this. Um, and you know, maybe for him that was good for his career, actually, because I think he needed that. Um, it, it helped him form a sense of identity. But at the same time, uh, a lot of us know that being that young and going into the enlisted military, any branch, can do a lot to your psyche, <laughs> a lot to your soul. And, I, I, you know, I think it brought out some some anger and some really ugly things in him that made it hard <laughs> to live with him absolutely so you know um but you know we went through that and he uh was stationed in italy uh so we so here i was in a a really fragile abusive relationship trying to process these things as a 20 year old baby and i went overseas and of course in my mind i'm like yay I, i get to go overseas the tck is really happy about that but not with this person and, you know, that that time was hard. You know, I endured, um, you know, some isolation because of him. Uh, he, uh, after a while, cu- 
cut me off financially. He shamed me for any purchases I made because I think he was overwhelmed. You know, I can look back at that now and go, oh my goodness, we were both overwhelmed and we did not have the tools to cope with that. And we did not know how to communicate with one another. And that just, mm-hmm. I want to hug both of those people now. Yeah, you, you are doing this so well, this <laughs> kind of... Um, compassion, compassionate perspective that I think is part of the healing journey after Mm. abuse, you know, to get to a place where um, you understand that even the abuser was operating the best that they knew how and often out of fear Mm -hmm. um, and and in that fear needing to control. And when you're with an empath, here's the thing I can control. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, yeah, you know, I can look back at it now. It's like looking sort of back into a tunnel and going, oh, look at that. I, I see that now. Mm-hmm. And it and I can also see the journey that I had to take to get to that point because there was definitely every single stage of grief involved in that and there should be. Yeah. Um at whatever time they need to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, yeah, you know, I um I think for a long time I didn't talk about it at all though. And I think that was that was the shame that I think a lot of people who have been abused go through. Mm-hmm. You know, the will I put myself into that situation? And I think especially as someone who's raised with faith and and raised really with very pretty healthy parents who loved each other and respected each other, I thought, why why did I do that? Um, and came back to the U.S. and had to resettle myself and all that. Um, and in the midst of all that, too, that was um, uh, when I attempted suicide. And, you know, that was a wake-up call, I think, for my family to start being fearless about, no, this is our, our child's life. and We'll do anything. We'll, we will do anything. And um, I cannot imagine what that was like. Now that I am a mother, I cannot imagine what that was like for my parents. I, mm-hmm. you know, And they watched me actually go back to Italy and try to patch things up with him because I felt in my heart that I needed to do that after recovering from suicide and, and really going through a very difficult time, I struggled with um, a lot of drinking and a lot of, you know, just sort of really bad patterns because I didn't know how else to cope with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we see that with PTSD and mm-hmm. it's something that, you know, contributes to increased shame is the coping mechanisms that you wouldn't have done otherwise yeah. that pop up and, and you blame and shame yourself for, yeah. you know, the use of substances like alcohol mm-hmm. or um, other drugs to re- really, it is regulating one's nervous system. And so, yeah. you, you know, you fall into these patterns and then blame and shame yourself for them, but knowing it never would have happened had you not experienced that trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And getting back to that and seeing that it's like peeling back these layers too that it's really hard work <laughs> it is hard work I mean you have clearly done your work oh I'm, gosh <laughs> I can, it's just like oozing out of you I'm like yes 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 she understands and you've done you are on a healing journey and mm. it's very clear to me um and I can see the inner peace in you that has come from that well I'm yeah thank you <laughs> it's it, it's hard work and it's never over and I, I would I would right. never want anyone to feel like you know hearing my story now at any point that, oh, everything is a-okay. Um, because the truth is, you know, you can go through that and then the rest of your life, you've got, you're a little wobbly. Yes. <laughs> you, you you kind of know where the chinks in your armor are really excruciatingly well. <clears throat> and um, and you don't always protect those either. Um, and, and that's when the other sort of bumps and bruises come along. And I, I think, you know, I, I look back at that experience and I'm, I'm like, thank God. 
I came through the other side. I am gobsmacked by that. There are stories that pop up in my head and I'm like, oh my goodness, I forgot that even happened to me. I forgot because there were so many things. Mm-hmm. And and you you mentioned that you you know you are aware you have complex PTSD. Yes. Which yeah. for the listeners, I think it's so important mm-hmm. to to note that, you know, I think PTSD came about to public knowledge mm-hmm. um, with, with military service and veterans returning from war. Um, and then our, our understanding has expanded to mm-hmm. survivors of sexual assault. And, and now we have this understanding of complex PTSD, which instead of maybe one traumatic event, yeah. it is a thousand cuts over the course of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the, the challenges of that, as you're saying, it's like we're wobbly. Yeah. You know, having been through trauma, mm-hmm. you know, you're more vulnerable to more trauma because you your nervous system is unregulated. Oh, my word. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's like, where does the trauma begin? Where does it end? You know, and you yeah. learn you along do. the way. And it is, it is a along the way thing because I think, I sort of became aware of or finally like that piece came together for me maybe six years ago, even though, I mean, that started a lot longer ago. Um, But that was the, I think, one of those pieces that really helped me understand, oh, okay, maybe there's some room for some compassion here (laughs) and some grace. And, and, you know, I think like so many things um, that... I've, I've watched this in other people too. Like you find say a diagnosis for some strange medical thing or, or, you know, mental thing, whatever it is. And all these pieces finally come together. And that was one of those big pivotal ones for me, because that's also, I tie that back to my struggles with, with my body that so many women have. It's not, it's not even fair, <laughs> but it, you know, so much of that does go back to now, you know, I can say there's also, and I say it with love, I look at my family and there were already sort of some struggles with maybe body dysmorphia, you know, across the board and, and sort of some self-compassion, lack of practice, I will say mm-hmm. about our, our physical, our, our physical bodies. But then compounding that with a really abusive relationship where my body was used against me, yes. like not only in the sense of like sexual assault and all that, but also just like I was shamed for gaining weight. And, you know, I look back now, you talk about the whole like trying to regulate yourself. I'm like, oh, my word. I was just trying to like soothe myself, yes. my my poor little soul at that time. So no wonder I was gaining weight. Yeah. And now, you know, this many years later, I'm like, well, I, I even had close family members say to me, like, after the divorce, after everything was fine, oh, well, you know, you're going to get back to the States and get back in a routine and, and the weight will come off, the weight will fall off. Oh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like a slightly triggered over here. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Which is fine, because I I know my triggers and I understand Mm. them all. But, you know, I think about various times in my life with my mental health and all of the validation I got when... I was either starving myself to punish myself Mm -hmm. or unable to eat because the trauma in my life was so severe that Mm. I couldn't eat. And and just people saying, you look great. You look And I remember the anger I felt because it's like, I'm dying. Mm -hmm. I am literally dying. And I'm being praised. And I'm being praised. And, you know, this concern when I was obese, like, Mm. we're just really concerned about your health. We're just really concerned about your health. And it's like, well, the the health (laughs) issue was abuse and trauma, Mm. not my body size and shape. Yeah, that's not the issue. And I, 
I, I have this really clear memory of like I think the first time family members saw me after um, my um, husband, my ex husband, and I got married. It had been a few months, and I cut my hair, <laughs> a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd already started gaining a little weight. And my mom talks about seeing me like run out of the house to the car because I'm so happy to see them. And she was recant- recounting the, this to us later. She's like, "That didn't look like my daughter." And I think part of that she was speaking towards she could tell that I was I was broken. I know that she could see that, but she could also see my body. And that is such a hard thing, yeah. you know. And, and I can, again, look at that and go, but I know also my mother has always struggled with that too, and she would tell you that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's so interesting to me that all the layers that we have as women, because, you know, I've probably praised someone for that too, you know. Yeah. You look great. And now I think, isn't there some other compliment I could have given her, you know? Yeah, Whatever absolutely. And, and yeah. or or how are you? Yeah. Because why are we looking at each other's clothing or size and not like here's the empath coming straight in your eyes. <laughs> why aren't we really reading the person that we're wanting to connect with? But I think it's cuz we're we're scared too. Mhm. Yeah, and I think yeah. you know, you even mentioning this is this is where it starts people starting to call out that this is not a good indicator mm. of anything mm. um, that's going on in a person's life and yeah. actually can be a very damaging thing to make comments on. And yeah. we don't want our worth based on our appearance because that's not where our worth comes from. No. And so, you know, to even just call it out culturally and say, hey, mm. this is problematic. That's that's probably where it starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard. It is a hard practice to actually call that out. Um, and I I try to do it in, in as sort of neutral a way as I can because we all have that kind of like sensitivity about bodies, period. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as, as, as I've like moved away from that point of origin, you know, that sort of like impact point where it was so difficult because I was so shamed for my body and my just sort of appearance and all those things – you know, I've, I've, I think, been able to kind of recognize over the years that taking control of my body doesn't necessarily mean achieving this particular thing. Yes. And I was so happy the other day, I talked to a friend I hadn't seen in like a year. And I've, I've gone through like a lot of stuff recently, that's very difficult and traumatic too, actually. Um, my, My son just completed cancer treatment about a year ago. And it was a really hard time. And so she knew me, like in the in the midst of all that. And she saw me, she said, you look lighter. And I knew that she was not talking about my body at all. And I just wanted to hug her because <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't because of COVID. But <laughs> it just that kind of a compliment when someone really truly sees you. Oh, my goodness. I hope I can give those compliments and just zip my lip if I'm like worried about them <laughs> in the other ways. But we yeah. do. We we lay those expectations on each other and reinforce them in ways that are so hard. And that's so funny because I love fashion. Like I love dressing well. I I love ex, you know just expressing myself as an individual, my hair has been multiple colors over the years, and I'm a, I'm a natural redhead on top of that. So, you know, I, I like highlighting those things that I love about myself. Um, but there's also, like, this line of, like, uh, you know, being a larger person, you know, I would love to wear some of the most gorgeous clothes that I've seen that they never, ever have in my size. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a little better now. Yeah, we're, but, the fashion industry is doing better than it used to. Yeah. 
for whatever reason. It's mostly money. Yeah, but consumerism. <laughs> all I that mean, thing. <laughs> capitalism. It's going to happen. Girl, that's a whole other podcast. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is doing better. But still, you know, there are these things that are off limits to you mm-hmm. just even to be able to purchase. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When I first moved to Waco and I, I am a shop local, shop small person, like I, I don't know, it just gives me a lot of joy um, to support local businesses and see them grow. Um, I struggled with that because a, a few years ago, I definitely couldn't find anything mm-hmm. higher than a size 14 on any of the racks. That's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love it. But again, being like the the fashion nerd that I am, I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> and a lot of you know when you are in a bigger mm-hmm. body or plus size body um you're kind of relegated to self-expression through accessories <laughs> oh my word so many scars I went through a phase like it, during sort of like the eight years where I was like either pregnant or breastfeeding you know successive times you know I, I wore a lot of leggings and a lot of these cute kimonos and scarves and big earrings and I paid hey, they made me happy at the time. Now I'm like, oh, man, I wish I could have had some clothes with structure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and comfort. Structure yeah. and comfort. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy to see that growing and changing and getting better. And, you know, the, the other pieces that are so funny and so, well, not funny, so interesting to me is we, we have so many just assumptions about, about people living in larger bodies and what they can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. And that is an intersection with ableism that I've I, I really – Oh, been like just floored by as I've you know lived a life in this body, but then also been highly aware of those kinds of things because of other family members who struggle with, you know, different medical issues and all sorts of things. You know, it's just like there there are assumptions that because I do weigh more that I am not interested in exercise, that I'm not interested in you know being a strong person. Um, I actually really love that. You know, I I. I love Pilates and yoga. I, I like lifting weights. I, I like hiking. And I can do those things. Mm-hmm. So um, it's a little frustrating sometimes when you're in a friend group and everyone's like, oh, but they, you can see them kind of like trying to gauge. Mm-hmm. And it is true. Like if I went cycling with you, I don't think I could probably do exactly the same things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we could just plan a different route. But even that, there's like a layer of shame there about like me speaking up and saying, yes. hey, I want to do this with you. But can we can we do it differently? Can we center this on maybe a different kind of experience to where we can all get out and engage physically, but we can all be like without, you know, not out of breath at the end of it. Right. Can we can we go at a slower pace? Yeah. Can we, you know, and I think that you're speaking to something really complex, but important. Mm. It's, you know, there is this blaming and shaming of the larger body, but then also not an invitation for the larger body to be part of yeah. meaningful movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think I've seen that uh, change in beautiful ways. You know, social media can be really shitty, sure, um, but it can be really helpful. So yeah. people like Jessamine, my oh, name is my word, that was like right in my head. <laughs> yes. yes, and and you know, even Tess Holiday in mm-hmm. terms of fashion, oh yeah, as this beautiful full bodied um, model that just yeah. you know less clothes uh-huh. is her motto, no, right? <laughs> I've been trying to embody that this summer. I'm like less clothes. I love it. I'm almost forty. <laughs> But, you know, like our bodies want to be expressive. And Mm. and for me, there's this piece also of like being in a larger body or body that's not not, um, socially approved of, Mm -hmm. like also having a sensuality. Yeah. 
and you know wanting to show my body exactly. off and mm-hmm. and that that is okay even if it's not the no, same yeah a 20 year old lululemon yoga body i'm i'm really glad I, i'm not 20 first of all anymore <laughs> and why is it just that <laughs> and it's not just that yeah. you know i think i think our culture is very slowly but is becoming aware that sensuality and embodiment is for all yes yes amen it should be yeah. Uh, so, you know, talking about Instagram or social media in general, I love following. Um, she's actually from Austin Glitter and Lasers. Ooh, I'm okay. Her. You're going to, you're gonna, I will send it to you, but you need to track her down. Because for her, when I watch what she does, she creates all sorts of like fun installations that go along with the fashion she does and these bright, just joyful, positive videos. And you can just see that like she has. She has over, overcome that voice in her head, too. And she probably, I know she does. She, she shares, you know, I actively have to work on that. But you see her climbing, hiking, wearing fun clothes, and just doing all this stuff. And I'm like, thank you. Because I can, that just gives me a little boost sometimes. Absolutely. To, if she can do it, I can do yes. it. Representation is so mm-hmm. important in that way. Yeah. And I am really lucky. Again, you know, I have a mom who sewed for herself all her life because she is larger. Um, but like you could tell, like there, she has such a fun sense of style. She loves bright colors. Growing up where we did, you know, there, there's this, you know, love for like African fabrics and, you know, just vivid things. And you can see, like, she decided I'm gonna do this for me. And I, I'm happy to see that now as I get older and go, okay, you know, mm-hmm. there's some good things there. Absolutely. But yeah. Um, so when you came yeah. back from Italy and, you know, you kind of were again in a position of um, kind of immigrating back into <laughs> American culture, which you had, you know, not so not so shortly before mm-hmm. identified as, OK, I could be this and yeah. then going overseas and coming back post trauma and kind of. Mm-hmm in a different body, a traumatized body, a larger body. And what was that recovery journey like? Where did life go from there? Mm, it was rocky. <laughs> um, I think especially the first couple of years after I came back, I, I now look back and think, oh, I did not know how to give myself time, um, which I think is a really common thing, especially if you've gone through that much trauma and you have sort of this narrative, I think especially like within religious circles of, well, you know, it's not supposed to go that way. Um, and in the way I was raised, you divorce was just not something you did yeah. unless there was like a couple of really big things that could happen. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I'm very lucky. I had family that listened, supported, and were like, get him out. That's you know, so important. Which massively so because then I came back in into the U.S. culture had that layer again to readjust to then the sort of layer of readjusting to being single and actually really never even understanding who I was as an adult before that point because I was a baby (laughs) Um, and and then the religious side of things too just like figuring out okay so I've come back to the U.S. I've come back to the church for comfort but the thing is I'm coming with the stigma of I'm a divorced person. Yes. A young divorced person too. And the sort of sideways remarks or inquiries that you would get from well-meaning church people and so on were really difficult. And like I went and reapplied at the university I started at because I was very determined to finish what I started Mm -hmm. and finish my theater degree there. And I was so eager to get just 
something normal back in my life that, you know, I had to like talk to the board at, at that university and like persuade them and say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to go back to this guy. And like, it would, I look back and I'm like, oh, I hope they've changed some of their policies because it was, it was also re-traumatizing to have to walk through that and explain I had a scriptural divorce. I, you know, all these different things that, that should not even have been a consideration. Why was that a consideration? So mm-hmm. I worked through a lot of layers. And I go back and I think, man, I did a lot. Yes. I did a lot. And I didn't even know. And I know that that's like a thing that we do sometimes when we've been traumatized is then we keep ourselves super busy. So we really don't have to feel the feels. Oh, um, girl. <laughs> you're calling me out. Mm. Oh. It's still, it's still hard, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I've had a recent um, resurgence of that struggle too. So, but you know, I went through that and um, fought my way back into university, struggled through it. I now know part of that was okay, you know, I didn't allow myself the breakdown I should have had. <laughs> yeah, and needed. And needed. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then I also go, I, I now know I had ADHD on top of that. Mm-hmm. So, like, executive function is just like not a thing mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I ended up getting um, a theater degree and finding out that I, I really loved theater production and like managing things which is really ironic I just said that thing about executive function but I did it anyway um, but that was really a challenging time because I came back feeling like the old lady I really had no self-worth at that point I, I think I, I told myself um, I think in order I think at the time to get through that I would never marry again I probably wouldn't have relationships for a long time um, and that you know I just needed to get through this and then prove my worth Perform. Uh, yeah, 100% perform. Uh, and, and so I got through college I t- and took a job uh, in Cincinnati with the theater and then I hit another wall. Mm-hmm. What's funny is at the same time I'm hitting this wall, I fell in love with my guy. <laughs> um, so uh, my husband, Eric, and I had known each other for the three years I was back in college and we were just good friends and just understood each other and uh I knew there was something there but you know I was I was the girl who came back from a divorce and all this trauma so I think it took him a little while he's an Enneagram five okay he has to think yes he has to think through everything he literally showed up on my doorstep the night before I graduated and said um I should have asked you out a long time ago. You're like, and no, I said, knew yeah. it, knew yeah. it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so here I was finishing college and going off to this theater job. And I was, you know, like, I have achieved this. I'm going to go do this thing now because this is the thing. This is the end result of me getting this degree. And I'm falling in love at the same time. And that was like the balm to a whole heck of a lot of hurt that happened in the next year because I went there and I hit the freaking wall because I had done the thing and then I went into another environment and my little body was going, what's going on? Adjust, adjust, adjust. What do we do? How do we stay safe? Yeah, yeah. And so I quietly had a breakdown in Cincinnati and I stayed there about three or four months and I, I've, the theater company that employed me were very gracious. When I look back now, I'm like, they probably just really didn't know what to do with me because like I I couldn't do half the work I was supposed to because I was just shutting down um shutting down and then going I would much rather be with Eric than here and so uh, that's what I did you know Mm -hmm. um it took me several years to forgive myself for it actually though like the whole like 
I got the shiny theater job. I'm going to be like this amazing professional theater person, blah, 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 blah. Quit that, got married. Because <laughs> literally we we dated for about three months and got engaged. And in less than a year, we got married. So those are the, you know, going back to that whole like positive things can still be trauma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. You're not trauma. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And hey, you know, he and I have talked about that. That, that was like a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Well, and the yeah. trauma is, you know, not being the person that you thought you were. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I didn't want to be vulnerable to love. And, you know, the first time around wasn't love. And the thing is, love is when it is true and good and selfless and mutual um, an incredibly healing balm, as you said. Yeah. And he we have become that for each other. Mm -hmm. And that has been one of the things that has allowed me. He has whether he I don't think he would ever say this and he wouldn't know it or maybe he'd know it, but he wouldn't know how to express it. Maybe that he has held space for me to heal. And he has given of himself, even when it was difficult at times, because he's got his own stuff, um, to really allow me to to be the person that I need to be. And, you know, we've walked through miscarriages, traumatic births, because birthing in a larger body in this culture is hard. Yes, I can relate. <laughs> and three double birthed babies oh. labored all the way, and then yeah. three emergency C sections. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I I nearly died after uh, the second birth, um, and that you know that had to have been really hard for him. I know it was because he he had to watch me, you know, pass out in a pool of blood on the floor after I delivered this amazing little boy, <laughs> um, and not know what was going to happen next. So he's, he has been my strong right arm through a lot of stuff and he's, he's allowed me to walk through it and it's not been pretty. (laughs) It really hasn't. We've, we've moved several times and he's a TCK too, a military kid. (laughs) Um, And, and he's been um, just the right partner and I couldn't have asked for anything better. And he's, and his presence has allowed me to hold on to my faith and actually grow it into something that's way healthier for me. And that has been powerful. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Because, you know, for many people having this sort of kind of um, religious kind of trauma foundation for a lot of these things that have happened, um, the fact that you maintain a faith, I think, is a, is a remarkable thing. Can you yeah. speak to that a little bit? Sure. And, you know, it's something that I'm still, I think, growing and working through. I think that's a common experience, not not just for people who have maybe struggled with CPTSD or abuse or those things, but just, I mean, there are a lot of people walking through faith struggles and Absolutely. figuring themselves out in the midst of it. I think for me, um, I, I go back to some of my darkest periods uh, in my early 20s, you know, when I was suicidal, when I was, you know, going through, like, should I get a divorce? Will, you know, my family turn their back on me for all the, thing, the things I've done that are so horrible? I always had a really strong voice that just said, you're good. You're good. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be okay. And even though my practice, like my faith practice has changed a lot and my sort of parameters for what I even like 
think about faith and how I hold space for other people who have different faith, that's changed so much and grown so much. I still have this real deep sort of sense of assurance of like my creator. My creator probably doesn't look like I was maybe taught, um, but it's the thing that has, and, and maybe that's it. That is my baseline. My creator is my baseline. Because when things are hellish, I'm not alone in the room. Mm. Um, I really am not. And that's hard because there are days when I'm like, oh, forget all of it. Because <laughs> it, it just seems like rubbish. It seems sometimes like all those extra layers that we, those expectations we put on each other as, as churchy people, mm. all those sort of social pressures, all those traditions, all those things. I'm like, why, why, why? That stuff just makes me kind of angry, mm. especially as someone who like at, at such a young age questions her own self-value, her own self-worth all of that stuff just because she had to walk out of an abusive relationship and have the D word on her back, you know? Mm. Oh, you know, she was divorced. I remember driving aimlessly when I came back to the States from like, um, we were in Kansas, so there are long roads, you know, just driving aimlessly and just being like, is there like a, a place I can go to to talk about my divorce? Is there a place I can go to? And, and just looking through every library I could. Where's the book? about, you know, someone who's, quote, godly, who goes through a difficult divorce and recovers, and it's not about, oh, and then I was thrown into the arms of another man, and it was all rescued, wonderful. Yeah. And rescued, mm-hmm. you know, and where where are the, the stories that are like mine? And I didn't have those then. And, that, and so I think, you know, being able to talk about that very clearly and saying, I struggled, and I still struggle, and I will always struggle, but you know what, I think it's okay. I think that's what I'm supposed to do. It, it may just be actually the human experience. <gasps> Right. Oh, <laughs> that thing, the struggle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I really lately, I think um, through my yoga practice and through trying to get a better grip on like meditative practices too, I've really been sort of caught up in this like concept of like, you know, you need to struggle. You need to feel the feels to grow. If you really have a vision of like what you want to grow towards, you're going to struggle. Yeah, it, it will hurt, but it will be pain for a purpose. Yeah. And I don't see any of that not jiving, actually, with Christianity in its maybe simplest, purest form. In the form of Christ. <sighs> yes, in the form of Christ. Um, hello, struggler. <laughs> Came to suffer. <laughs> and even even some examples of, like, other followers of his that also struggled. You know, so, and, and actually you're pretty honest about that. In, Are in, you a Henry Nowen fan by any chance? Yes. <laughs> yes. So he's, he's one of my forefathers, mm. just somebody that I have found a lot of comfort yeah. in, you know, kind of coming out of evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. but still feeling very connected to yeah. Christ um, archetypally. Mm. And, you know, Nowen speaks so beautifully to being a wounded healer in yes. the way of Christ. And and so, yeah, there, Christianity kind of boxed up white evangelical mm-hmm. American Christianity does not do well with suffering no they do not know how to speak to it they do not know how to handle it in in their congregations and amongst the people and so oftentimes you're just kind of thrown out yeah 
um, because they don't have mm-hmm. the the bandwidth or even the theological framework in yeah. in place to help. Um, but there are people and and yeah. theologians and strangers that you'll meet yes. and beautiful redheads in your, <laughs> on your podcast that, that can can give voice to that. Yeah, yeah. I was really, um, I think, comforted in, in the past few years by the writings of like Sarah Bessie mm-hmm. and Rachel Held Evans because both of them talk a lot and so does Glennon Doyle about like what it's like, and this is Brene Brown too, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> All the queens. You know, what it's like, yeah, the queens, um, to be cast out into the wilderness and being like, <gasps> I'm in the wilderness, but you know what? <laughs> not alone. And not alone at all, at all. And um, it's honestly a delightful place to be. Yeah, I, I mean, finding myself in spaces with those amazing women, too. Maybe not physically. I, yeah. Unfortunately, oh, I'm not man. good friends with them. But you yeah, know, maybe yeah. that'll change someday in my fantasy <laughs> world. But even Anne Lamott, for me, oh. was you know a beginning person yes. um, who can be identified with in Christianity, but often rejected by Christians and Christianity, yeah. but felt like home to me in her mm-hmm. confessional writing and honesty about the suffering and the struggle of her own life. Yeah. And, and really in, in her faith, it gives that, I think the suffering and her faith is that contrast that we talked about earlier yeah. of like the beauty that is made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you are othered by the church, yeah. You are outcasted. Um, it really goes against all of the things that that you thought you were part of this belonging, mm-hmm. and and maybe you were also um, part of the othering yeah. of people that were different from yeah. you. You and know, that's humbling. And, it's humbling, and, and when it be- when yeah. it happens to mm-hmm. you, I think there's this beautiful well, opportunity for growth, compassion, empathy, and just yes. like growing the heart of Christ. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And I, uh, that's, you know, I'm like, I will stay in the wilderness. I will light a bonfire for you. Come. Mm-hmm. Um, which is my heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I want those people. <laughs> I want them around me and I want to love on them well and say, you know, here's, here's a lot of stuff to help me. And you're going to find even more amazing stuff. And it, you don't have to let go of anything that makes you, you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think back you know, that's the whole thing with the faith thing. Now, you know, I've had to make choices that um, differentiate me from, say, the faith practice I was raised in. And those have been hard. And I've, I've thought about them and prayed about them and worked through them for like, sometimes years before they've come to a point where I could act on them. But once you step through that door, and you you can find a space where you aren't traumatized when you step into a church anymore mm-hmm. and where you feel like you can actually talk about everything you're interested in, in a, in a spiritual space and where you can find the people who actually are delighted that you are there, that they see you mm-hmm. and not, not the, that little boxed white evangelical <laughs> person <laughs> that you just described. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just that's a good place to be. It is. And, you know, those communities can be really hard to find. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, you know, you did your time in the wilderness <laughs> and probably go back from time to time yeah. just because it's home. It's valuable. Um, you know, that that to me reeks of, I think, the truth of this concept of like 
a personal relationship with the divine. Mm. Um, because when you are alone in the wilderness, there's no outside voice telling you what it should look like yeah. or how to perform it correctly. It is just this dance between you and your creator, as you yes. put it. And and there's nothing imperfect that can happen in that space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so And, you know, being someone courageous enough to re-enter a church and mm. say, this is me. And and so I'm so grateful that you have had experiences of being accepted. I am, too. And I know that's unusual. And I know also, and I'm in full support of so many loved ones who have just said, I can't do this anymore. Right. And they've maybe they've searched, maybe they haven't for something else. But they've exited completely. And they've also found themselves. And I see lightness and joy in them. And I I can't speak to that experience. I don't have a right to. Because <laughs> it's not yours. It's not mine. And I think that's like one of those big things, too, that like in that, that process of just sort of pushing against that white evangelical box is like just, oh, wait, <laughs> we're actually a whole lot richer, too. Like if we just cast that off and look at each other. Mm-hmm. The the beauty of diversity yeah. is really something that is I find profoundly sacred and holy. And mm-hmm. you know, even in doing this podcast, and I'm very aware that a lot of the topics that I want to feature are going to create pushback. Mm, sure, in the community yes. that we live in. And but but I'm so driven towards the beauty of diversity. Yeah. And you know privileged in my career to hear stories from people so different from myself Mm -hmm. and to see the beauty and and to see the love the light the divine image in all people Mm -hmm. and who am I to tell them what that's supposed to look like um it feels like a very sacred space and so you know I I love hearing you talk about this you you know we're not here to judge Mm -hmm. And I think those messages are pretty clear, even within um, traditional Christian scripture, yeah. maybe just not lived out. Yeah. And that's the heartbreaking thing to me is I'm like, it was right there, but it wasn't lived out. Maybe people didn't have that opportunity to see it in practice. And I can now look back at, you know, sort of the atmosphere of maybe being raised as a missions kid and not like in that little box in the U.S., I have been able to see faith in different forms all my life. Mm. And I saw grandparents and parents who could see what you just described. Oh, this person is really different from me, but I'm convicted that I need to, to know them and, and serve them in some sort of way. And, you know, I think that invitation to potentially even learn from them yes. just enriches yeah. the entire process. Yeah. And that's one of those big things that, like, um, I'm grateful that my, my grandparents and parents always said is, like, when we have American missionaries, um, short-termers, come visit us, we always tell them, you are here to learn. Yes. You are not here to teach. And, you know, to me, um, I always say I'm recovering know-it-all. Um, I think maybe because I've, I've, I, it, that's been my armor in the past of like, oh, I know. And, you know, perfectionism and, 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 and know-it-allism is very strong with me because I, wanna, I don't want to be seen as incorrect. <laughs> but at the same time, I saw at an early age that deep practice of like just curiosity and compassion and learning how to be empathetic. Yes, and, and let's elevate these, these things that are so true but maybe get missed the mark in education like humility oh 
Yes. You know, <laughs> it's like we are put in this position of, you know it all. This is the one right way and go and teach everybody else the one, mm. one right way. And this is how you show yeah. love. Um, but also we're not supposed to judge and also, yeah. you know, <laughs> walk humbly in this, in the spirit and all these things. And so, you know, kind of having this journey, I think you are able to speak to these things that are deeply, deeply sacred, mm-hmm. um, that, that maybe in this culture, in this space and time, and p- particularly, I think we're probably around the same mm-hmm. age, um, <laughs> with purity culture and all the yeah. things really just the church missed the mark on like these were the things that that really matter yeah they did and and i don't think it's bad i'm grateful for the people in positions of power who've been complicit in that kind of harm who've actually said oh that was bad i was wrong that was that was a mistake that was wrong please accept my apology and done the work Mm -hmm. (laughs) um that helps me actually have hope as a parent now um, seeing my kids and thinking about like what I want them to feel about their bodies and about who they are and just loving their their sweet selves and um, and then and because we are raising them, you know, to, to understand our faith practices to know that their creator loves them because man, you are created by them. Hello. Yes, and <laughs> I mean, when it's your child yeah. as a like. Uh, participant in the creation of them mm-hmm. um that that heart for your children yeah. you know there is nothing that they can do ever that will change the love that you have and it, it's almost a a beautiful mirror potentially of if you hold this faith in a higher power yeah. how that that entity might feel towards you yeah and i have learned so much from my kids and especially after watching my son walk through um, cancer treatment I really see my creator in him I mean just and we were lucky like he's still with us um but to to face that mm, the fragility of life like that oh it'll shatter you absolutely <laughs> it's still a little shattered I'll be honest yeah but um oh I'm so grateful for him like in a way that I just, oh, I'll never be able to completely explain, I think. I think that feeling of gratitude is one that when you really have faced losing it all, and I think in in, in a cancer diagnosis with a child, it's like, mm-hmm. this is my life. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I lose them, I lose it all. And psychic, psychologically, the psyche goes there and kind of dies in yeah. a way. And so on the other side of that, to have gratitude for the life that, that is still here is a profoundly impactful felt experience. You know, mm-hmm. that feeling of gratitude. It's one of my favorite feelings. Yeah. I'm a feeler. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, gratitude. That's my favorite. I want to order some of that. It up. is. Oh, it's sweet. Yeah. And it's healing. It really is. Um, we're really in a season now, finally, I think, where we can feel gratitude about it. It's been hard. And, you know, people pull away, especially with pediatric cancer. They don't know what to do. Even more so than, like, when I got a divorce. Even more so when I finally shared my, my experiences of sexual trauma or suicide survival. Any of those things. Nothing was like the loneliness, yeah. the loneliness of being at home with ever. <sighs> yeah. People in our society do not, again, this, we're coming back to this, we don't know how to suffer. 
No. We don't know how to suffer for ourselves, but we don't know how to suffer with the other. And, you know, the word compassion gets thrown around a bunch. But, you know, when you break down the Latin of passion, which is mm-hmm. suffer and come mm-hmm. with, it's to suffer with. and yeah. alongside. And alongside. And so people do not know how to enter into this space of suffering. And that is the one thing that is actually very needed, yes. especially in these sorts of situations and in, in grief, yes. even if it's like grieving the thought of the loss of your child yeah, and that's a big one <laughs> and you know yeah. what 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 can you say to people about about you know what is needed when people are walking through the dark night of the soul in that way um you know people I think are just afraid to say the wrong thing they are and you can see it in their eyes <laughs> and you can see it just sort of in the, the the energy that they have about them I I can think of really like strong memories of people standing, uh, you know, across church pews or, um, you know, over a phone call or even in social media land. And you can just, you can feel this sort of like, okay, I don't know what to say. So I'm going to say these things. He's a trooper. (laughs) Oh, he's our superhero. Um, you know, or just things like, um, uh, you know, praising God that he's here and his journey is so amazing and God's going to do so much. And I, every time your heart breaks, cause you're like, but I go to a clinic where I hear babies cry cause they've got needles in them. Yeah. And some of them don't get to go home with their parents. Yeah. We don't need platitudes in those moments. I don't. And those, those sorts of things are the things that make other people feel okay yeah and so you know i think and and i'm an imperfect person you know Mm. i suffer with people for a living yeah but (laughs) you know but just this invitation maybe to come and just cry with or allow allow somebody to rage allow somebody to be angry Mm -hmm. with god allow somebody to be fearful feed them Yes. Take them food. Oh. Do their laundry <laughs> without their without house, asking. Uh, without what being you asked. Need. Yeah. 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 If you're asking someone <laughs> in in that level of trauma and grief what they need, yeah. there is you're not going to get any no. sort of answer because no. we can't connect to our needs. No, we, we are. Can't. You are in fight or flight. Yeah. You are. Um, and I, I I remember times when people would say, "What do you need?" And I at the time couldn't have told them anything, but internally at the same time, I'd be like, "Will you come brush my teeth and dress me?" Right. Will you come, you know, change my son's sheets for the third time tonight? Um, You know, uh, all those things. But you don't say those. And because we don't talk about those things. Mm -hmm. And there is a shame there, there too. There is a shame there. And it's... It's hard. It's it's even now it's hard to talk about because I am. I am so grateful he's with us. Mm-hmm. But I also want him to know what his journey was like. He was diagnosed when he was three and a half. And so I feel very committed to holding his story and also recognizing that he's going to tell me things when he's older that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And that there are some things he won't remember mercifully maybe. I don't yeah. I'm not sure. Um, but I want to hold it lightly and I want to be able to say from my experience as the caregiver and as the parent, we need to do better folks. <laughs> yeah, we need to learn how to care for one another yeah. better. And, you know, I would, I, I, my hopes are something like this podcast and, um, you know, I really invite listeners if they are moved and, the, you know, gosh, how can you not be mm-hmm. to share it? Because I think this is a conversation that needs to be had about how do we care for people in the midst of their struggle and of their yeah. pain. Um, and 
and isolating because we don't know what to say yeah. is not what we do. No. And it's like, you know, do human things. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to be a human right now. All they're doing no. is suffering. So yeah. like, again, this like feeding, like yes. maybe even brush their sometimes, teeth. Sometimes, yes, it is sometimes the most basic things. It's and basic human the, survival things. The people that showed up for us while ever was in treatment are just some of my favorite human beings in the whole world because they would they'd leave like essential oils on the doorstep or coffee um or they would just text and be like you know how are you doing I know today is a clinic day I know this is you know a rough period he's going through you know and and it's more than and this is the hard thing to express because I do I have gratitude for this but at the same time you know people send us money I'm grateful for that because it did help us but it also kind of hurt at the same time that some of those people were the ones I really thought would show up on my doorstep and would clean my house and would bring a meal and who would sit with me and have a cup of coffee and cry together. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. They just sent me money. The money I'm so grateful for. Yeah. But it, you know, it's so weird too. like, especially now with COVID, like, okay, we all order in meals and, and, and stuff like that. But like, there is something so different about like someone just showing up, even if it's like a meal they picked up from the restaurant, I'm fine with that. But like doing that extra step, it bringing them humanness. Yes, it is. It's a human thing. It really is because we watch our nurses do it all the time for, for our kiddo when we're in there, those simple, simple things. And man, those people love us so well they serve us so well Mm -hmm. well Stephanie your story (laughs) is I mean so complex multifaceted and just really rich you know with maturity and and healing and just the way that you are able to speak to it even in the midst of you know this this last um trauma that you have walked through um with such grace and also I think a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from the ways Mm. in which, you know, we can help, we can do better. And also for people who are potentially walking through trauma Mm. to know like, oh gosh, this is, this is what I'm needing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, am needing people to just do human things for me. Um, (laughs) but I, am really profoundly struck by how much healing it is clear that you have done, um, and to remain open hearted, which is beautiful. Oh, thank you. I uh, I have a friend who like recently started designing T-shirts and sweatshirts. And I just ordered one from her. And it, I, I'm trying to remember what the saying was because it speaks to that. It's like something about holding on to your softness. Like don't lose your softness. And that is ah, the thing that I, I try every day. I tell people sometimes I do have like this this hit of black despair somewhere deep inside me. Like there is a really strong cynic inside me. Mm-hmm. But I found that I'm way more myself when I let people see those soft, vulnerable sides, those squishy sides. And, you know. Yeah, and that, that inner cynic, that's, that's the part <laughs> of us that also wants somebody to show up yeah. to clean its house, you know. 100%. That, that, that inner cynic wants an arm put around it to be like, I know you kind of are against everything right now uh-huh. I'm here with you and yeah. you know we can we can tend to ourselves with that mm-hmm. with that lightness that you that you have and you know it is the both and there yeah. is the darkness and the joy the suffering and yes. and the meaning that we make from it um what message do you want to kind of end with for our listeners after having shared so much of yourself oh. 
Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing, the thing that I, I think about, I think a lot, the one of the, and it's maybe simple or whatever, because of, I think all the perspectives that I've sort of been blessed to have and see and hold in my life is, you know, everybody has something. And I know that sounds glib, maybe in some ways, everybody's got something. No, everybody has something. And so whether you know it or not, you can hold space for that person. And you might find across the table that that is the person that you need to know the most. Mm. That has the most to teach you potentially. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, sometimes I've had people brush up against me and, you know, they've hurt me. Mm-hmm. But they've also kind of maybe broken me open in a way that needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's allowed me to grow and become so much stronger. And, you know, that's the thing is, you know, we, we get downtrodden about like being sort of defined by our trauma sometimes. And it's really discouraging. It's frustrating because it's like, oh, why am I broken? But no, you're not. <laughs> like you're really, really not. Mm-hmm. So, you know. And that brokenness is a chance for repair and healing. And in the repair and healing, we become stronger. And Mm -hmm. to start understanding suffering in that way as almost an invitation to the beauty that comes on the other side. Yeah. Um, And that suffering is often experienced when we feel different from the other person in front of us and that there's fear there. But, you know, to dig a little deeper, to lean in a little more and then Mm -hmm. be able to see the beauty. Um, I see that in in talking about diversity within Mm -hmm. this time with you, but also within our own journey with ourselves, leaning into the suffering, knowing that there is a lesson on the other side that will enhance Mm. your understanding of yourself, the world, the divine, Mm -hmm. the other, whatever Mm -hmm. that might be. Um, that's the treasure. Yeah. That's yeah, the treasure. Is. Yeah. And it is. It's an internal and an external practice for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we keep a, a sign above our, our piano, anyone who comes to our house that has Renee Brown's Stay Awkward, Brave, and Kind. <laughs> and I really, that's for myself as much as for any other human being I encounter. Mm-hmm. You know, just, I'm going to be kind of goofy, <laughs> but I'm going to keep pushing and I'm going to try to be as kind as I can. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you aren't awkward, then you're boring. Oh, man. I mean, who doesn't love a good weirdo? I think we both very much enjoy the Island of Misfit Toys. Yes. That is this journey to the heart of Christ mm. and, you know, celebrating diversity and difference and also suffering well. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if you are looking for um, a role model or a hero or somebody shining a light to help you keep <laughs> going, then I think Stephanie's your, your oh. person, you know, just to sit with you in this time and space. And, you know, we talk about the red hair, but it is, it, you are beautiful and radiant and, um, the, the lightness that is radiating off of you in the midst of this. I think it's just incredibly inspiring, um, particularly now knowing, some some of the fullness of your story i'm i'm really grateful um you know and and you probably may be allergic to this idea <laughs> but like 
you know, your light, your life is something that will inspire others and does. And I think, you know, today you've given a lot of people an opportunity to keep pushing, um, which I would imagine is something that you value. Well, thank you. And yes, I, I think what I have been most comforted by in my life is when other people were willing to be vulnerable and share those those experiences. And so I would love to pull up a chair next to anyone and listen mm-hmm. and hold that space. Strength. So, so grateful. Strength and vulnerability. Yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, what a beautiful episode today. I have a lot to think about and be grateful for after hearing Stephanie's story and all of the ways that it has cracked open my own heart and made me self-reflect. And um, we're just really lucky to have these wonderful, strong women in our midst and have a platform to hear their stories. So join us again next time for Sister Speak when we will Hear another amazing and incredible heart-expanding story of a brave woman in our community. Um, We'll catch you next time. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Emma J. Church for updates and podcast schedule. Catch the show on your favorite podcast platform or at roguemedianetwork.com. 